Hello and welcome to the July podcast for The Lancet Neurology. I'm Richard Lane and I'm delighted to be joined by TLN's Deputy Editor, Elena Becker-Barossa. Elena, welcome. Hi, Richard. And some of you may recognise Elena's voice because she has the distinction to have helped me produce the only Spanish podcast that The Lancet has ever done when we ran a Latin American special issue of The Lancet Weekly Journal sometime last year. So it's great to have Elena back. Though don't switch off, she will be talking today in English. Elena, you've been very busy preparing the podcast for this month's issue, so why don't you just walk us through the issue? Yeah, so I think that the July issue of The Lancet Neurology will be particularly interesting for movement disorder specialists. We are publishing two original research articles that describe the clinical features and the penetrance of a specific type of hereditary Parkinson's disease, which is caused by mutations in a protein kinase, LARC2, the leucine-rich repeat kinase 2. But I wouldn't give any more details about these findings because those will be explained by Dan Healy, the corresponding author of this paper. Very mysterious, Elena. I like it. In this issue, also about Parkinson's disease, another original research paper looking into neuropsychiatric outcomes after deep brain stimulation of the subthalamic nucleus. This is an interesting paper in which Gunther Doschel and colleagues conclude that the procedure is safe with respect to neuropsychological and psychiatric effects. Finally, a randomized controlled trial of almost 500 patients supports the efficacy of a transdermal formulation of rotigotin in the treatment of moderate to severe restless legs syndrome. Rotigotin is a dopamine receptor agonist that has already been proved effective in the treatment of Parkinson's disease. Thanks, Lena. So, some good sounding research there. What are you doing in terms of reviews? We published a variety of reviews this month. I would like to highlight two of them that I believe might be particularly useful for clinical neurologists. First, a very comprehensive account by Massimo Filippi and colleagues of both the current status and the future prospects for the use of magnetic resonance imaging in multiple sclerosis. And secondly, an excellent article on how to diagnose and treat acute bacterial meningitis in the areas where it represents a greatest challenge in resource-poor settings. Bacterial meningitis, one of the leading causes of death for children in developing countries, is also the focus of our leading edge this month. And this is because we are trying to raise awareness of the urgent need for collaborative efforts to tackle this devastating disease that leaves many people in developing countries with neurological disabilities. Thanks very much, Elena. Let's now listen to your interview with Dan Healy. And this is discussing the research article, which is looking at a hereditary root of Parkinson's disease. An article in the July issue of the Lancet Neurology reports findings from an international consortium of investigators on a specific type of hereditary Parkinson's disease which is due to mutations in the gene that codifies for a protein kinase, the leucine-rich repeat kinase 2, known as LRRK2. Daniel Healy from the Institute of Neurology at University College London is the corresponding author of this paper. Dan, thanks for talking to us today. The consortium involves 21 centers worldwide. Why did you set up this collaborative effort? Well, I think the main reason is that uh, for this is that it became obvious fairly shortly after the disease was discovered, that the gene was discovered, that uh, there were lots of patients out there with mutations in LARC2. Uh, in other words, unlike most of the other uh, genetic forms of Parkinson's disease, that this gene was going to be clinically relevant. Most clinicians who see any sort of number of patients with Parkinson's disease will be seeing patients who probably have it. And so, uh, I think there was a need to, um, I guess, address some clinical questions and try to 
I guess, add some degree of power in terms of numbers and uniformity to the way in which the patient uh, and the consortium was uh, set up. What were the major aims of the consortium? The first is obvious. Is there something about this patient, these patients that allows you to distinguish uh, LARC2 um, from other genetic or non-genetic forms of Parkinson's disease? And I think the answer to that on a one-to-one basis is probably no. When you look at the data overall, of course, we did find some features we, you may want to discuss about later, like a more benign phenotype. But uh, individually, I, I, I don't think there was any standout red flag that would allow a clinician to say, yes, this patient should, probably has LARC2. The other question, of course, um, is this gene is going to move into testing. You know, clinicians are going to test these patients. There are commercial companies already that are doing LARC2 testing on a commercial basis, and many of the universities are testing it for diagnostic purposes as well. But, of course, when you test a patient for a gene, you need to be able to give them information like what does carrying a mutation actually mean for me, particularly uh, when you're testing people who are at risk of LARC2. In other words, the children, for example, of these uh, patients. And that's important particularly for LARC2 because the penetrance is low. So it seems to me that the article focuses on carriers of a specific mutation that causes this uh, substitution in the protein sequence from glycine to serine. So why was that? Why this particular mutation? Well, yeah, the reason for that um, is because uh, this is the big one, the big mutation in terms of the uh, number of patients affected from it. Um, so uh, G2019S um, looks like a, a reasonably old mutation that probably arose at some point uh, in the Middle East. Um, its prevalence amongst um, patients of uh, Ashkenazi Jewish origin or uh, North African Arabic origin, particularly Berber, uh, is remarkably high, somewhere between 10 and 30% of sporadic Parkinson's disease patients have this mutation. And because of various population migrations and so on, if that mutation has found its way into Caucasian populations. And in, for example, Europe, basically the nearer you are to uh, the Middle East, the higher the prevalence. So in G2019S is, is the big player numerically. Uh, the other mutations in general have been found in relatively small select number families or possibly one exception of a mutation that seems to be quite common within the Basque population. So that's why we focused on G2019S. And what's the phenotype associated to this particular mutation? Again, the phenotype, I think one can only draw conclusions on the basis of large numbers of patients here. I think individually, there's, I would not, and, and we did not claim that there was a specific uh, LARC2 phenotype, but our data, and I have to say my own experience seeing patients with LARC2 as well, suggests that this is a more benign disease. So we measured this in lots of different ways, in terms of the rate of progression, in terms of the amount of dopamine replacement therapy they needed, in terms of their risk of getting dyskinesias. If I could give a, a sort of practical example for a clinician, we studied how long it took a patient with a LARC2 mutation to have a fall related to their disease, and it was about 13 years after disease onset. Now, we were fortunate enough, one of the things 
that we did on this study was to compare the phenotype of LARC2 with the phenotype of approximately 500 uh, patients from the uh, Queen Square Brain Bank who had pathologically proven Parkinson's disease but sporadic. In other words, they didn't have the G2019S mutation. Um, this work was done by Sean O'Sullivan. His data uh, shows that the first fall in idiopathic Parkinson's disease occurs about nine years after onset. Uh, with LARC2, we're talking about 13 years of all onset. And when you're looking at you know, big numbers, those, that four-year difference is, is quite significant. The other feature, I think, which is most striking is the cognitive impairment of LARC2. And again, I've seen this clinically, I think, in my own personal practice as well, is that the risk or the rate or the severity of dementia in uh, these patients is probably lower. Do you have any explanation as to why that might be? I don't, to be honest, and I, I think it's something that needs to be looked at in a, you know, in a more delicate way. I think we, you know, there are much better measures of cognitive uh, function, some specifically for Parkinson's disease patients, that I think are needed to to uh, probe into, you know, what cognitive domains are actually affected more than others and uh, probably uh, studies like volumetric MRI compare, you know, actual comparing braid volumes of these patients, um, those sort of things I think need to be done. But one, one has to presume that whatever is happening at a molecular basis, I think, in LARC2 is in some way more benign on that, those parts of the brain, at least, that are involved in cognition. What about the penetrance of the mutation? Could you please summarize your findings with respect to that? I would say, and, and again, there's a graph, uh, one of the figures in the paper, uh, looks at the penetrance basically mapped against age. And I would say, as a rule of thumb, uh, after the age of 40, the age of the patient is the same as the penetrance. So if you are, uh, for example, uh, 60 years of age, then the chances of you having uh, uh, Parkinson's disease symptoms, if you have a, a G2019S mutation, is about 60%. If you're 70, it's about 70. If you're 80, it's about 80%. So that would be a kind of a working rule of thumb that I would say uh, would be uh, useful for clinicians. That sounds very useful, yes, indeed. So what should a clinical neurologist learn from your findings? How would you summarize the take-home message of this article? The first thing I would say is that uh, I would hope that, you know, keep an eye out for the patient that you think is, you know, gosh, this patient has had Parkinson's disease for 20 years and they're still, uh, you know, we're still having a very good conversation together and that, that they're still on a comparatively low drug dose and so on and they're doing very well, that might be a group of patients to consider. Of course, what we haven't discussed but I think is important is that there are certain groups of patients on the basis of this work and may I say a lot of other work that preceded this uh, collaboration that would, would suggest that, for example, if the patient sitting opposite you is uh, of North African Arabic origin or if the patient is an Ashkenazi Jew, even in the absence of a family history, given the high prevalence, that I think you probably need to discuss with them the possibility that they have a genetic form of Parkinson's disease and raise the questions to whether they want it to be tested uh, for LARC2. I don't think the same applies to, for example, an Englishman or an Irishman or any Caucasian with no, no family history of Parkinson's disease. 
I think the age of onset was something that we found very striking. One of the graphs in the paper looks at the age of onset of uh, LARC2. And really, it's not a disease that comes on early or in the sort of category that we use for young onset Parkinson's disease, i.e. before the age of 40. This disease comes on almost invariably after the age of 40. Um, and that is really markedly different to uh, the other common or common-ish form of uh, Parkinson's disease, that is the PARC2, or Parkin gene mutations, which is uh, inherited in a recessive rather than dominant fashion. So one of the things we looked at was uh, the age of onset of approximately 200 Parkin homozygous patients, and virtually all present before the age of 40, whereas virtually all LARC2 presents after the age of 40. So as a clinician, if you, you know, if you get a history, as is often the case, that uh, your patient has Parkinson's disease and a sibling has Parkinson's disease, and therefore you're not sure could it be dominant or could it be recessive, then using that cutoff might guide which way you go. In other words, do you go down the uh, recessive gene route or the dominant gene route? What about uh, those patients in southern European countries? I'm thinking of Portugal, Spain, Italy, Greece. What would you recommend? I think, can I use the term grey zone <laughs> area there? Um, so the Portuguese, for example, um, 1 in 25 or 4% of sporadic uh, Parkinson's disease in Portugal has a G2019S mutation. And if there's a family history, it's, it's much higher. I think it has to come down, in, as all things in clinical medicine, to the clinician judging the patient that he's or she is sitting opposite and deciding whether that you know that patient broaching the possibility of uh, genetic forms of Parkinson's disease is appropriate for them and their family. I think in those grey zones it really has to be something a clinician decides. What's the consortium looking into at the moment? Um, one of the things that the group or a consortium like this has the power to look at, which of course individually maybe not possible, is to look at uh, what are those factors that influence the penetrance of the disease. So here we have a disease where within given families who carry the same mutation, you have some individuals developing Parkinson's disease at the age of uh, 46, and others, like a parent or a sibling, who develop it in their 80s, and they have the same uh, Mendelian mutation. And one is, you know, one has to consider that perhaps there are other genetic factors that, that determine this. And there are ways, association studies, even potentially genome-wide studies, that one could compare those patients who have uh, LARC2 mutations who penetrate and who get Parkinson's disease and those who don't penetrate to see whether there's something genetically different uh, between those two patients. The other aim, I suppose, or the other thing that a group of patients like this could be used for um, is in identifying a group of patients who are mutation carriers but unaffected. In other words, in the pre-clinical or pre-symptomatic phase. And in terms of uh, therapies of the future in Parkinson's disease, that's where we want to go. We want to uh, no longer just treat the symptoms, we want to perhaps treat the disease as well. So with LARC2, it's now possible to put together a group of patients who don't have clinically Parkinson's disease, but in whom you know are genetically programmed to have Parkinson's disease. Thanks very much for speaking to us, Dan. Please be aware another article published in the journal this month, leaded by Matt Ferrer of the Mayo Clinic, elegantly complements the findings from the LRRK2 consortium. Ferrer and colleagues report clinical symptoms in patients from Tunisia, where this form of hereditary Parkinson's disease has a particularly high incidence.
If you are interested in hereditary Parkinson's disease, do not miss these two articles. This has been Elena Becker for The Lancet Neurology in London. Well, that concludes this month's podcast, the July issue of The Lancet Neurology. Elena, thank you very much for joining us and for your hard work preparing this podcast. Thank you very much, Richard. I would have preferred to do it in Spanish, though, but... Maybe next time. Thank you. Thanks all for listening. See you next month.